We're going to start with Telegraph to Television. That's the title here. Sharing a Sanctuary with Sinners. That's the title. But I want to, instead of starting with the issue of the Telegraph, which some of you already know, some, something else that happened in 1844, I want to take you back in time to those exciting days when people genuinely looked forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Lots of people. Few might realize how many people were involved from how many different churches. Six continents, okay, people were proclaiming the coming of Jesus. From the Methodists, Episcopalians, Congregational, Christian Connection, Wesleyan, Presbyterian, Baptist, even Roman Catholics, they were out there talking about this. There were many preachers uh, talking about this. Uh, we don't often mention it, but there were several black preachers as well. Charles Bowles, John Lewis, and of course the well-known William Foy. Women preachers were also out there. Miss Seymour, Miss Spence, Miss Emily C. Clemens, Sarah J. Pine, Olivia Maria Rice, Miss Ma Lucy Maria Stoddard. In fact, this lady, Miss Stoddard, preached in central New York for six months. Every night and three times on Sunday. Okay, imagine that. And a number of pastors were her converts. Uh, you might remember about what happened in Sweden, where the clergy of the state church were really not that interested in preaching about Jesus coming. The lay people began to preach, but they were beaten, they were imprisoned. And what began to happen is a strange phenomenon known as the child preachers. So between 1842 and 1843, many children and youth, girls and boys, some as young as six years of age, preached about the second coming. Fascinating thing. And called people to repentance. Listen to this. One peasant girl was visited by three to four thousand people. And what's more amazing is that these kids couldn't even read. Illiterate children. Of course, it was mainly William Miller's preaching here in uh, the United States that got people excited and interested in the coming of Jesus. And I'm going to get this uh, clicker going here. Um, trying to see where my... Did you take it out? Oh, that there. Okay, good. Found it. Thanks, Adrian. It's always good that somebody knows where something is. 1831, just to remind you, William Miller began to preach on Bible prophecy. Okay, we already talked about this and we showed you a picture of William Miller. Just to re review, remind you, we talked about it before. The main text that they used was this one. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And of course, using their calculation of a day being a year in prophecy, Going back to Ezekiel 4, verse 6, and Numbers 14, 34, I have appointed thee each day for a year, each day for a year in Bible prophecy, that's Bible apocalyptic prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. By the way, this is the easiest place to go. But, one of my professors, he became a friend of mine later on, his name is Dr. William H. Shea. Anybody know Dr. Bill Shea? Oh, a lot of hands going up. That's good. Dr. Bill Shea has written a book. If you ever have a chance, buy it. It's not a big book. It's called Selected Principles of Prophetic Interpretation. And the second half of the book, book is devoted to showing 23 evidences. Biblical, astronomical, mathematical, <coughs> 
<coughs> sorry, eighty <coughs> percent of it is biblical, and not just these two texts. He goes through many evidences why the year day principle is a solid, irrefutable biblical apocalyptic prof prophetic principle. There is no way to argue it. Once you've read that through, you either have to ignore it or you accept it. And just, you know, you cannot say, well, maybe. It's very, very clear. And this, this is just the simplest way you go about it. But even from the book of Daniel, when I used to teach the book of Daniel, which I did when I was in Africa, <coughs> it was fascinating. The students loved going into the book. And in the book of Daniel, the year-day principle is required. It comes right from the book. Fascinating. So, they were correct. They came to the conclusion that 2300 days equals 2300 years. Here is a facsimile uh, of the original 1843 chart. Uh, you see the big uh, image here and going all the way through and there is where they ended up. No matter which way you counted, you would end up with 1843. Why 1843 not 1844? They forgot, didn't realize that there was no year zero. Okay? Mathematically, when you go from the negative to the positive, there's a zero. But because there's no, and eventually they realized it was 1844, so they had a minor disappointment, and eventually they got it correct. I already pointed out, many began to proclaim this message. And uh, so, <clears throat> what was the message in a nutshell? And I shared this before, the appeal, prepare to meet Jesus. That was the big appeal. A lot of people were excited about this thing. However, October 22, 1844 came, and there was a devastating disappointment. They were just... Imagine, just think about this for a moment. You know what people did? They sold their homes. They quit their work. They, they literally were serious about it. They spent time, like here, except they were in meetings for hours, singing, praying, confessing sins, making things right with people there, with people wherever. They were very, very serious. Now, it's true. There were some people that took advantage of it. There were people that said, ah, you want to sell your lot? And then, of course, they would buy it at a super low pro price because they knew these people were planning to go to heaven. And the skeptics didn't believe it, and so they made, made quite a bit of money off that. Uh, but these people had really were absolutely convicted, ready for the coming of Jesus. Of course, they waited. They waited till midnight. When the bell tolled midnight, they were devastated. Yet, years later, a Millerite wrote the following. In reviewing our past history, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say what? Praise God. As I see what the Lord has wrought, I am filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. And immediately comes the next statement that some of you know by memory. If you don't know it by memory, please read with me. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and His teaching in our past history. Now the question is, how could Ellen White make that statement? Well, something very interesting happened. Uh, an enlightening experience to one of these Millerite leaders. His name, and a picture of him right here, his name was Hiram Edson. Hiram Edson had a group, some of you know the history, so I'm going to review it very quickly and go through it very briefly here because I want to share with you a few more things that you might not be aware of. Also, again, 1844 material and things that happened there. So I'm going to fill in the rest of the story here about Hiram Edson. October 22, he was the leader of a group there in Port Gibson. And, uh, sorry about that, Port Gibson. And what happened? The people there were devastated. And uh, that fateful day, a lot of people were wondering, had God 
forgotten about them? Had God, why had God let them down? Move this over here, sorry. Forgot these things uh, fall apart if you don't do what needs to be done. Okay. <laughs> why had God forgotten them? Hiram Edson said, No, brethren, God is in heaven. He has made himself known to us in the past. He will not fail us now. We shall know what God's purpose is. But he says, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed as the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. Then he says, We wept and wept till the day dawn. Through the night. Most of the believers then just left, slipped away quietly. Hiram Edson then said to a friend of his, let's go and encourage some other believers. Let's go across. And so they went through his field. And um, then on the way back, halfway across the field, Hiram Edson says, he saw as it seemed a kind of a vision, not a real vision, but he just realized something incredible. He said, wait a minute. He says, I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to earth, and the tenth day of the seventh month, at the end of the 2300 days, he for the first time entered that second apartment of that sanctuary and had a work to perform in the most holy place. This is what Hiram Edson concluded. Then he went home and they began to study the Bible and began to look at the sanctuary service and they said, wait a minute, how come we never saw that? Of course, you know the sanctuary uh, model here. You've had your own one right here on campus. The uh, uh, ministry during the year, the daily ministry that was there, he, they began to study this whole issue. They realized there, of course, the burnt offering out here. Then inside, there was the daily ministration here in front of the altar of incense. And, of course, as they studied more, they concluded, yes, this was the going into the second department ministry. Ellen White says this, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. And then she says, the subject of the sanctuary opened a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement, revealing present duty as it brought to light the question, the position of his people. By the way, there's a professor at Andrews, I'm going to pause here. His name is Dr. Fernando Canali. He's in Argentina, considered the foremost philosophical, biblical thinker in the Adventist church. Brilliant professor, loves the Lord. He has been studying this whole concept for a long time and he is convicted as well. If you study the Bible clearly, the subject of the sanctuary is the macro um, foundation for all biblical truth. He's actually published two or three scholarly articles now in the Journal of the Adventist Theological Society. He's written materials, he's written his dissertation on uh, uh, theological thinking, a critique of theological reason. He is a foremost philosophical thinker in the church. Brilliant, and he sees this as you dig into the scripture. Yes, Ellen White was not so-called a scholar, but she was a careful student of the Bible, and she was led by the Lord. And here, now Dr. Canali is finding the same thing. Obviously, um, let's just review some of these things about the sanctuary. This is Daniel speaking here. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And notice what it says next. Okay, this is Daniel. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated... His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. Okay? 
His throne was a fiery flame. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Daniel chapter 7. Adventists have dug into this, have studied this, all the way back from the time the people were disappointed. And we have concluded that yes, there was a judgment hour message. It might sound scary, but it is a reality. As Romans and many texts point out, Romans 14 verse 12 says, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. There is, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must do what? Give account. There is an accounting. There is a judgment. And we have been talking about it, proclaiming it for 150 years. But there is good news, folks. We don't have to be afraid of the judgment. Why? Read with me now. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So there it is. We have Jesus right there in the heavenly sanctuary making intercession for us there right now. Incidentally, it was here in California, I believe, 25 years ago, the day before I got married. On a Sabbath, October 27th, that's why I remember it so well, because I got married the next day. When an Adventist theologian challenged the whole sanctuary message, he raised a significant point. That was specifically this. If you read the book of Hebrews, it says, and the, Jesus went into the entire sanctuary after he was resurrected. And a lot of people got consternated, if that's an English word, got word concerned. But you know what's interesting? Fascinating. James White, Uriah Smith, all of these pioneers, they had studied the scriptures, they came to the same conclusion. Really? Yes. Because in the earthly sanctuary, a few slides before that you saw, when the sanctuary was constructed, the first thing the priest did was a dedicatory ceremony. And he went into the entire sanctuary, the whole thing dedicated for its use. The holy place and the most holy place. And so, this, the early pioneers of the Adventist church, Uriah Smith, and the documents are there. There's a book I would recommend called 1844, The Pioneers and the Sanctuary, by Paul Gordon. That book is a compilation of the original articles written and published in our magazines. And for, uh, there are over 200 articles on the sanctuary. And you know what? Never once do they ever quote Ellen White. Nobody said amen. I hope you would say amen. Where did they get the information? The Bible. That's right. The entire sanctuary message for, for 30 years. Always from the Bible. They, you can find it there. Solid. And you know what they found out? That they went, Jesus went into the most holy place and the holy place, the entire sanctuary, and dedicated it, just as in the Old Testament, when he went to inaugurate his heavenly ministry, he went to the whole sanctuary. So actually, that theologian was only correct partly. That was the dedicatory ceremony. Then after that, what did the priest do? Then the priest began the daily ministration. And in the same way, we as Adventists consistently believe that then Jesus began the daily ministry. And then in 1844, he began the final yearly ministry in the most holy place. We've got to go back to our Bibles. Then we won't be shaken 
by some of the questions that are raised. It's a fascinating study. There are seven volumes that have come out called from the Daniel and Revelation Committee. And uh, I, I want to just remind you here before we go further, um, Clifford Goldstein, in a book he put out recently called, uh, two, three years ago, Graffiti in the Holy of Holies. Anybody seen the book? Several hands. He has summarized to a large degree those seven volumes that are serious the best of biblical scholarship done over 10, 20 years. And uh, unfortunately, those who disagree with our biblical view have not considered the overwhelming amount of biblical evidence that has been carefully done by the best of our solid Bible-believing Adventist uh, students of Scripture. So there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And this is just an artist's impression. Yes, we are excited. We have an incredible message. That message was actually realized what year? 1844. Again, we keep coming back to 1844. Keep coming back to that momentous year. I'm not going to spend time on this. Maybe I should read you just one uh, summary by a friend of mine um, that has summarized this in just literally two paragraphs. What do we as Seventh-day Adventists really believe about this? Two paragraphs. The entire sanctuary message. Can you believe that? Two paragraphs. You want to hear it? Christ's death and resurrection from the grave lie at the very heart of the plan of salvation. You believe that? Calvary was God's final answer to the human predicament. Christ's sacrifice is described in the Bible as once for all, valid for all time, hence unrepeatable. Nothing can be added to the cross in order to supplement its atoning and expiatory power. Jesus in whom his life was, Jesus who in his life was victorious over the tempter, came to destroy the works of the devil. His victory over the forces of evil makes possible our own victory over sin. Do you believe that? Okay. As well as the final eradication of evil from our world. The New Testament's emphasis on the finality of Christ's atoning death has led some to conclude that His work for our salvation came to an end at the cross. This calls for further clarification. Now listen, having accomplished on earth the work which he came to do, Christ was, quoting scripture, taken up into heaven, quoting scripture, to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's biblical. Till at his second coming, he will appear not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Between these two poles, the cross and the glorious return of Christ. Christ functions as royal priest, quote, from the Bible, in the sanctuary and the true tent, which is set up not by man, but by the Lord, the advocate, the intercessor, of for those who believe in Him, as our high priest, Christ is ministering the benefits of His sacrifice to those who draw near to Him. Listen carefully. A ministry as essential to our salvation as His atoning death. That is what we as Adventists believe, and it's a solidly biblical belief. By the way, I didn't mention all the Bible texts. They littered through here. And so we have a very important message to bring to the world, to make the world aware, I'd say the world, others out there who don't realize the important 
aspect of ministry that Jesus is right now actively involved in. He is right there ministering on your behalf, on my behalf. A very vital ministry, as vital as His atoning death. He died for the world, but right now He is... um, the benefits of His atoning death are being made available. And if we will accept His atonement, then um, we too can be part of the people who will live with Him forever. In a nutshell, from a major mistake, they, the major mistake, they thought that Jesus was coming in 1844. That was the major mistake. From a major mistake, we have now moved to a mighty message. What is the message? The ministry of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. We need to go out, we need to preach it, we need to teach it, we need to tell people about that. Okay? That is one of our tasks. Now, we were not the only people, by the way. Did you know that? Let me tell you a little story. A friend of mine, Dick, was flying on a plane one day, and as he sat down, this is why it's good to get in conversation with people, okay? You're in the plane, or you're on the bus, wherever you are, talk with people. As he sat down, he looked at the gentleman next to him, clearly he was not a Westerner, and they began to talk, and he said, what are you? Oh, I'm a professor, I teach uh, where? At Andrews University? Who are you? Oh, I'm a member of a certain religious group. And as they talked, well, when did your religious group begin? And this man said, oh, our group started in 1844. My friend Dick's eyes were immediately, of course, what? 1844? But, but, but that, that's, uh, tell us. And of course, he started telling him about that. And so I began to, and then Dick found out who he was, and Dick came to tell me. He knew I was doing the study. He said, Ron, you've got to include this group as well. Ah, yes, sure enough. 1844, folks. While people in the West were expecting the coming Messiah, did you know that people in the East were proclaiming the coming Messiah as well? Listen to these words. This is from a book by William Miller. No, not the William Miller you just looked at. And ironically, also William Miller. How coincidental can we get? William Miller wrote this. Listen carefully. Only God knows the time of His appearing. His coming will be preceded by wars, confusion, eclipses of the sun and moon, a terrible increase of infidelity and corruption of morals. He will bring to an end all oppression. William Miller wrote this. William Miller, he wrote this in 1974. He was not talking about the coming of Jesus. What was he talking about? Aha, you've got to go to the east, to ancient Persia. Shiite Muslims, nowadays with Iraq and that, we hear a lot about Shiites, right? The Sunnis and the Shiites. The Shiite Muslims, somewhat similar, they believe that their, one of their leaders had gone up and they were expecting he disappeared in the year 260 of the Muslim calendar. They said he will reappear after 1,000 years. Did you hear that? A millennium. So he would come back in the year 1260. Have you heard that figure before? (laughs) Isn't that interesting? The Muslims believed that their leader would reappear in the year 1260 of the Muslim calendar. Let me read from their books. By the way, I checked out about eight of these books from the library and I read extensively on this because I was totally unaware of this. Oh, listen to this. The year 1260 of the calendar of the Muslims, I'm quoting, 
coincided with the year, what? 1844 of the Christians. So just as there was a major expectation of the coming of the Savior in the West, so in the East, I'm quoting, there was an instinctive search for spiritual truths and old prophecies were being renewed. And so it was. During the reign of Muhammad Shah in Persia, now modern Iran, in the year 1844, that the dawn, I'm quoting, that the dawn of the long-awaited day of God, foretold by all the scriptures of mankind, appeared. Did you know this? It's incredible. No matter where you are, 1844 was a major thing. And so it was on May 23, 1844, that Sayyid Ali Muhammad pronounced that he was the expected 12th spiritual leader who was to come back. He was the promised one. And he set out a pilgrimage to Mecca, and there in December 1844, the same month that Ellen Harmon had her first vision, Sid Ali Muhammad went on a trip to Mecca, and there he proclaimed that he was the coming Messiah for the people in the East. And thus began what movements? The Baha'i movements. 1844. And the man who sat next to Dick was a Baha'i. Go to their website. You'll read there. I went to their website and I checked, as I said, about eight books out. They are five million, not many, five million compared with some other groups. But they are the largest, sorry, they are the second largest, second most widespread of the world's independent religions. Little bit all over, here and there. The Baha'i movement. Again, what year? 1844. Just a picture of the, the Muslims here. And I want to show you some of their, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, one of the leaders of the Baha'i. I believe this was um, a later leader, obviously. You can get a nice picture like that. Um, maybe my battery's dying. Uh, their mosques or their houses of worship are all over. Um, they promote ecumenism. Uh, here are some of their beliefs. Okay, This is the one true faith for the entire world, replacing all previous religions. Okay, Very interesting. The human soul is immortal. You've heard that before? Listen to this one. Religious truth is not absolute, but relative. Okay, And the devil, guess what? He does not exist doesn't exist. So this is the Baha'i movement that is now worldwide and uh, they are trying to get everybody to join their movement, different of uh, their houses of worship. Very interesting. They are all over. Uh, incidentally, at the same time, 1843, the year before, there was this young man in Europe who started a philosophical movement, um, existentialism, which is again saying the same thing as the Baha'is, no absolutes. Everything is relative. Philosophical <coughs> Relativism, and this is the attack on absolutes. Now what's interesting is this. As the Baha'i movement was coming up, 1844, this is 1843, Soren Kierkegaard was promoting there are no absolutes. At the same time, God was raising up a people, Seventh-day Adventists, that say what? Yes, we believe in the Decalogue. Do we? Yes, there are absolutes. And I found that this was interesting. Attacks on absolutes, philosophically, and of course, I mean, theologically from a religious movement, and at the same time, God is raising up a people that is saying, we believe in the Ten Commandments. 
a picture when he was uh, older. Oh, no, this is, sorry, that was not him. This is somebody else I want to talk about in a minute. Uh, the final thing here as we round off. This was, man was an inventor. Also 1844, another final major movement, but this was a good movement. This is an exciting movement. Um, as you look at this thing here, what do you think this is? Anybody know? Teller? Yes, that's right. What was his name? What is the name of the man who invented it? Anybody know? No, 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 no. It came out... Uh, not that. <laughs> Very funny. Come on. What's his first name? Morse? What is his first name? Samuel. That's right. Samuel Morse. Okay. And, and <laughs> Alfred Vail. Very bad. You guys... <laughs> Did I talk about absolutes a minute ago? <laughs> anyway, it's funny. Yeah, and by the way, what's interesting, he tried to get the telegraph going in 1842, and it didn't work. In fact, he set it up, a line going underneath, and they were, they, everybody came to watch this happen, and then somebody pulled up anchor and snapped the line, and he said, oh, the reason it's not working is they broke the line, and they made a big joke of him in the newspapers. They said, this is a harebrained scheme. And so it was only in 1844 that he was able to a line from Baltimore to Washington and he sent across uh, the message. Anybody know what it said? What hath God wrought? Four words from the book of Numbers. For the first time ever, people were able to communicate faster than what? A horse? Maybe a bird flying? <laughs> okay. The first time. Now news could travel. And from that came radio, and from radio came television, and now we have satellite dishes, and we have all kinds of things spread. And now, for the first time, we can begin to tell people the good news. The three angels' messages we can now spread abroad rapidly, fast, through these means. By the way, that doesn't let us off the hook because we bump into people every day who need to hear the beautiful news about these three angels' messages. I'm going to have you read them with me, even though some of you know them by memory. Let's read these together because this is our charge. This is part of what we as Adventists know we are called for. Let's read together now. Then I saw another angel in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. Now, I don't know if I've got the next verse. Let's see. Uh, I don't have the next verse here. But the next verse is interesting. It says, And worship Him who what? Made, carry on, heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water. Now, the one who made heaven and earth and sea, that is a phrase that comes from guess where? The fourth commandment. A direct quote. Interesting. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. And right there, by inspiration, the phraseology comes straight out of the fourth commandment, a reminder that the seventh-day Sabbath is a key issue at the time of fearing God and worshiping Him at the end of time. Fascinating. And so here is a message. Since eight, the year 1844, we have been living in what the Bible calls God's judgment hour. 
And in a sense, we have a choice to make, folks. Just like these people at the time of Noah. I like this picture. It's an incredibly beautiful picture. It almost looks too beautiful, too peaceful. And the danger is we can also be sitting back too peacefully. Unfortunately, if you look at the faces there, what were they doing? Making fun. Jeering at Noah, he preached day after day. And even this incredible miracle of the animals, the unclean coming in two by two, uh, the clean coming in in supposed to be pairs of seven, the birds coming in, even this incredible miracle did not wake them up. Do you know what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16? If they will not, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, that's a catchphrase for what? The Bible. If people will not believe the Bible, they will not listen even if someone were raised from the dead. Did you hear that? Those are the words right from that allegory. Very important. That's the key point of that whole story. These people would not believe the miracle because they wouldn't listen to the Word of God. That's a very important lesson for you and for me. If we will not listen to the Word of God, we will not believe even if a miracle happened. And in a nutshell, that's the final call I want to make to you. Here is the patience of the saints. Read with me. Here are they that and the faith of Jesus. Two important aspects. Please notice, only the faith of Jesus can give us the ability to be part of the saved people who then, because we love Him, will keep His commandments. So here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So here it is, simply. Jesus, God says, look to me, be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. That's the Old Testament. And notice the way the New Testament puts it here, the words of Peter. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We as Seventh Adventists believe it is Jesus Christ who saves us. Do you believe that? And because we love Him, we want to live for His glory. Simple appeal. Now, of course, the challenge to you and me is a very important challenge. I hope that during these past five hours as we've been sharing here, you have begun to more clearly see that God clearly raised up this Advent movement. When I share this, by the way, just a short story here. His name was Tim. You might know him, Tim. His name was Tim Arena. He was at Southern years ago. I see Norm shaking, nodding here, and Tim. Tim Arena, music major, played the piano beautifully. And I had Bible studies with Tim. I studied with him, didn't get baptized. Ten years later, we were back in touch, talking. I shared the series I shared here over this weekend in eight parts. American Cassette Ministries recorded it. Tim Arena in Indiana, a decade later, after we had had Bible studies, listened to the series in eight parts. You know what happened? When he was finished listening to that, he said, I now know for sure that God raised up the Advent movement. I want to be baptized and become a member of it. <laughs> he called me up. He said, Ron, will you come down and baptize me? <laughs> of course I'll be happy to do it. A decade later, some people are slow learners, we say, 
Some people need, need a lot more evidence, we say, okay? And some people just, the Lord leads us, okay? At our own pace. I don't know how, which one it was in Tim's, but I'll tell you this, folks. Tim is a totally dedicated young man to the Lord. He is always studying, searching the scripture. He just spent the weekend with me, not this weekend, the last weekend. He, and he is now dating a young lady, Heather, and he, he came to me and said, would you perform our wedding for us? I said, I'd be happy to, but I want to get to know your fiancé. I don't want to perform a wedding for one person only that I know. So he and Heather have come to our home, and the weekend before I came out here to California, Tim and Heather spent the weekend with us the second time. And boy, you should hear this young man. Loves the Lord, digs deeply into the scripture. Eventually I said, Tim, are you in the right vocation? Boy, you know the word so well. You love the Lord. So, and he's sharing it and he's telling others. I said, you sure you shouldn't go to the seminary and study? Because he's a solid, solid musician. Excellent. He, he writes. He just wrote a 30-minute orchestral cantata, whatever. He left a DVD for me to listen to. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. But this guy's brilliant. And he's solid. And he loves the Lord. So I'm trying to encourage him now so he can become a solid Theo-musicologist. Okay? And use both. We need people who really understand and who write well and who really knows no music and also is serious about the scriptures. This is Tim. And it all came through this series and I just praise God. I had the privilege without even realizing it to help Tim to make that final decision. I'm a pastor. Yes. So here I am this evening. I don't know. I want to make an appeal here. Is there anyone here who's had a chance to see this, who's not been baptized, who actually would like to stand and say, I have seen how God led in this movement, and I would like to stand and say, I want to be baptized. I don't know when. I might not be ready right now, but I want to publicly say, yes, I would like to join this Advent movement. I'll study further, and when I am ready, I'd like to... I'll be baptized. Anybody here would like to, who has not been baptized, I don't know who you are, and I just want to make that appeal. Anybody here? Who's studying, who's interested, young or old? I made that appeal because of Tim's decision. I just want to give you the opportunity. Second appeal. You who are Adventists. Let me see the hands of those who are Adventists. Raise them high. Wow. <laughs> if that's not about 101%, uh, not possible. Like, whoa, now I'm going to lay it on you. Are you ready for this? Pull your toes in quickly. Pull your, pull, step, pull your toes in. I don't want to step on them too hard. <laughs> okay. Brothers and sisters, we're all part of the family. We have a major task ahead of us. We've got a wonderful message to share with the world. People are out there dying to hear this message. And my appeal to you, are you willing to be used by God in whatever way He knows best? We always have two dangers. We run ahead where angels fear to tread. We hold back when God says, move ahead. Okay. By God's grace, let's be willing to go at His pace. And where He opens opportunities, share the wonderful truths God has blessed this movement with. Here's my appeal. If you are willing to do that, I'm going to ask you individually to stand. Don't stand because... The, stand saying, God, as you open the door, I will go. 
I'm only standing to show my willingness. Whatever it may be, you will provide the resources, you will provide the opportunities, you will help me with the right words. I just want to say, I'm willing to share these beautiful truths that you have blessed this church with. By the way, I'm standing, so I'm going to raise my hand because I'm already standing. And God will open the right door, folks. He did it with my sister-in-law, who is a backslidden Adventist. I one day raised my hand, and the right time she called me, she said, Ron, I need advice. I spent an hour and a half talking with her, and I said, Sis, I said, hey, call her by her name. I sense this is the right time to make a personal, spiritual appeal to you. You know what she said? You're right. The Holy Spirit will direct you. That's what's kind of exciting about this. When you stand, He will open the right door at the right time. I want to pray with you. Holy Father, you have blessed us super abundantly. We don't even have room enough to receive it. Thank you, thank you for raising up this movement. Thank you for calling us into it. Lord, we have stood today, and I'm raising my hand to show a willingness as you open doors, as you give us opportunity to tell others about Jesus Christ, to tell others about the wonderful Sabbath that you set aside for us, to tell others about the health message, to tell others about these many incredible, beautiful, biblical truths, to tell others, most importantly, about Jesus Christ and His imminent return, about Jesus Christ who right now is ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. Lord, help us empower us to be faithful for your glory so that when Jesus comes, there will be a great harvest, friends and loved ones, all ready to meet him. In his name we pray. Amen.